Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Well, hi again. I'm Tom Brenneman, and welcome to Dialed In with Tom Brenneman. We thank, as always, our producer-engineer, Dave Armbruster. And today, we have Norman Julius Boomer Esiason on the program today. Boomer Esiason, you know him. Great quarterback. Uh, I believe a Hall of Fame quarterback. He was voted as one of the top 25 greatest quarterbacks in the NFL since the merger. And I had a chance as a very young man, as a uh, starting my career as a reporter, to cover Boomer Esiason when he led the Bengals to the Super Bowl back in 1988. In fact, I was at that Super Bowl and on the field for the entire game and and was there as Joe Montana took the 49ers 92 yards for a touchdown to win that game. But today we're going to visit with Boomer Esiason about his childhood. He lost his mother when he was seven years old. His dad raised he and his two sisters by himself. He was a World War II veteran. We'll also talk with him about his playing career and about all the work that he has done since his son Gunner was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis back in 1993 and the Boomer Esiason Foundation and all the incredible work they have done on behalf of, yes, their son, but for tens of thousands of others. This is Dialed In with Tom Brenneman. Since 1882, Children's Home of Northern Kentucky has been a lifeline for children and families in crisis. Now known as CHNK Behavioral Health, its team of doctors, nurses, and therapists impacts nearly 4,000 kids and families every year. An array of mental health services including counseling, addiction treatment, and psychiatric residential care. CHNK also continues to care for abused and neglected youth who are in the state's custody. Right now, CHNK Behavioral Health is offering a free 10-minute conversation with a clinical therapist to help families dealing with the increased pressures caused by the ongoing pandemic. Visit www.chnk.org for more details or for the free conversation with a therapist, call 1-844-YES-CHNK. Living with Change is a nonprofit organization supporting transgender youth and their families. Transgender youth face higher rates of violence, victimization, substance abuse, suicide risk, and homelessness, but have few resources to help deal with those issues. To combat those numbers and in partnership with Cincinnati's Children's Hospital, LWC created with Living with Change Center for Gender Health serving more transgender patients and families than any other center in the Midwest. For more, please log on to livingwithchange.org. Norman Julius Boomer Esiason was born in East Islip, New York, in April of 61 to parents Irene and Norman Esiason. After high school, played college football at the University of Maryland for head coaches Jerry Claiborne and Bobby Ross and had offensive coordinator Ralph Regan there, too. Esiason was selected by the Cincinnati Bengals second round of the 1984 draft, the 38th pick overall. And if you can believe this, no quarterbacks were drafted in the first round that year. He would become the Bengals' full-time starter a year later and directed one of the most potent offenses in the history of football. In 1988, Boomer Esiason led the Bengals to the Super Bowl, 
They, of course, lost that game to the 49ers on the game's final drive. He was the NFL's MVP that year. And in 1995, I would say more importantly, would win the prestigious Walter Payton Man of the Year Award for his incredible charitable work. Football Nation named him one of the top 25 greatest quarterbacks of the post-merger era. Since then, well, he's, he's been everywhere on TV, including serving as host for Miss America. You've heard him on Monday Night Football. He currently serves as an in-studio analyst for the NFL Today on CBS. He has a morning drive radio show in New York. He and his wife, Cheryl, have two children, son Gunner, daughter Sydney. Gunner, of course, was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis in 1993. He has since graduated from Boston College. He works for the Boomer Esiason Foundation and coaches high school hockey, a dream of his since he was a kid. What did I miss, Boomer Esiason, that you are the most <laughs> proud of? I mean, there's a lot going on there. I don't know. Do you get hired to do eulogies? That's what I want to know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, my own really... recently. Thank you. <laughs> you know what, Tom? And I'm I'm glad that we can have this moment together. But I, I just, you know, for me, I never really think about all of that stuff. And when you lay it out like that, it sounds like I've been pretty busy throughout my entire life. But I wouldn't want it any other way. You know, my dad taught me work ethic. And uh, whether it be on the field or in the booth or on a radio station, uh, it's all about showing up and it's all about being accountable and, and, and doing the things that, you know, come your way. And I was able to uh, exploit a platform of an NFL quarterback to raise hundreds of millions of dollars for cystic fibrosis. And Gunner is almost 30 years old and he is at the Tuck School of Business now at Dartmouth. So wow. his life was unlocked uh, due in large part to uh, the science that has been paid for by the money that we've raised. And, uh, a new drug came out about three years ago, and it unlocked his future. And now he's living, breathing success story that, you know, we try to tell as much as we can simply because uh, we don't want people to be depressed when they get diagnosed with cystic fibrosis. Or, you know, if parents now know in, in, uh, in uh, right at birth that their child was diagnosed with CF, it's not a death sentence the way it used to be. And, and Gunner is a proof of that. We're going to circle back to that a little bit later on. I want to go back, though, to Boomer when you're growing up in New York. Um, And, look, you've been asked this question 10,000 times, but when I was getting ready for this show and telling a couple of buddies of mine in the neighborhood I was having yawn, and they asked about, you know, where Boomer came from. Now, I understand that your mom actually gave you that nickname while you're still in the womb. Is that true? That is 100% true. And and I think both my mom and dad did that uh, for a number of reasons. Probably the biggest reason was my father played football at Columbia and the kicker on his team, they they called him Boomer because he could boom the ball. <laughs> and I was a very active child inside my mom. So they would refer to me as Boomer, uh, not knowing that I was going to be a, a boy. They, you know, obviously they didn't do what we do today. They didn't find out the sex. So uh, I could have been boom, boom, I guess, if I were a girl. But, <laughs> you know, uh, when I came out, um, my mother uh, and my father agreed that my first name was going to be Scott. And when my father returned after I was born, because back in those days, dads didn't hang around the hospital. They went to work and then they showed up after mom was done giving birth to the child. My father recognized that my mother changed the birth certificate to name me Norman after my father's real name. And then Julius after my grandfather's real name, her mom, her dad. So I was Norman Julius Esiason, and my and my dad looked at my mom, and he told me the story. He said, 
I looked at your mom and said, thank God we nicknamed him Boomer because he can't go through no <laughs> life with a name like Norman Julius. You know, I want to ask you about your mom, Boomer. Um, Irene, she, you lost her when you were seven years old. Um, and, and look, uh, so many of us out there have lost our moms, but not when we're seven. Um, you know, what's your fondest memory of her? I mean, that's very young, seven. Very, very young. Yeah, it's uh, it's faint memories, to say the least. And the farther I get away from it, the harder it is to remember. But I do have many photos of her around me. I remember her playing the piano. Uh, my sisters, who are, who are eight, nine years older than me, I lost my oldest sister a few years back, but uh, they would tell me stories about how my mom was always the life of the party. She would always sit down on the at the piano and start banging out these songs and she would sing and she was blonde haired, blue eyes. And she was the love of my father's life. You know, I'd never seen my father with another woman until he died in 1999. So from 1968, when she died until 1999, when he died, I'd never seen him with another woman. I don't think he ever even thought about it. At least not in my eyes. I never saw it. Right. Um, and this is who my mom was. She was the life of the party. She was the big personality. So I guess I knew where I got my personality from. Uh, my dad was a, a World War II vet. Um, he was a, uh, a really hardworking guy, came back on the GI Bill, got into the insurance ind- industry, uh, and basically had to raise three children um, after my mom died in 1968. So I know it wasn't easy on him, but he sacrificed his entire life. Uh, especially for me because I was the youngest and it's, it's hard to remember those, those times, but all I do know is that I tried to emulate my father with my kids because I saw how my father sacrificed for me and built memories for me. So I wanted to do the do the same for my kids. You play three sports in high school and I've read that Maryland was the only college to offer you division one to offer you a scholarship why (laughs) for football yes and that is a true story and the way I got the scholarship uh it was during the basketball season so my senior football season was over I was the all-state quarterback for the state of New York I was the all Long Island quarterback but we only threw the ball like 10 times a game it wasn't like (laughs) it is today and, you know, there were no camps to go to. There were no, there was no thing called rivals.com where they, you know, get your name out there. And, and you know, there was none of that back then. So um, it, it turned out that I was at a basketball game and I was playing against a highly recruited football player. You know, because back in the day, we all played three sports. And I was uh, our team's best player. We didn't have a great team. We were about a 500 team. And we were playing this other player's team. And they were the number one team in, in our county. So this was and, and our rival, by the way. And we killed them in football my senior year, and they had a great team then. And now we're going to play them in basketball, and they have a great team. And, you know, they're number one, and we're just an also-ran team. So I had to cover this kid. And lo and behold, I had the best basketball game I've ever played in my life. I not only shut him down, but I scored like 30 points, and we beat them on their court, and the place was going crazy. And after the game – my high school basketball coach says to me, you know, the Maryland coach is outside. He wants to talk to you. Now, at that time, the University of Maryland had a pretty prominent basketball program led by Lefty Grizzell. Yep, yep. And I'm thinking, what the hell is Lefty Grizzell doing here? That, that was my <laughs> first thought. And it turned out to be the running back coach of the football team who was there to recruit this other kid on this other basketball team. 
And he says to me, he goes, I didn't realize you were the athlete that you are. I said, well, because my coach in high school, who was my, is my, like my second father, my football coach, he wouldn't let me run with the ball because we had nobody else to play quarterback. So he said, you throw it, you hand it off, and you stay out of the way. That's the way I was taught to play football. And uh, so I got the scholarship based on a basketball game, and I got the last scholarship at the University of Maryland in 1979. And, Tom, when I got there, I was the 10th string quarterback Good Lord. Uh, for the Terrapins, and they had to write my name in on the depth chart. That's how far down it was. Well, you know, obviously you go on and, and you become a great player. You become an All-American there, Boomer. And, uh, you know, I, I was talking with Dave Armbruster, our producer-engineer, who you knew back when your days in Cincinnati. He's been around, you know, for almost 40 years in radio here. And, and he brought up to me something I've thought a lot about in my, in my time working, especially with Brian Billick on the NFL and, and obviously a great offensive coordinator and head coach and so forth. And, and we used to talk about the it factor all the time. And, and – you know, look, you may have been a high school guy that, that was throwing the ball 10 times a game. You might have been, uh, you know, working your way up from number 10 on the depth chart, but you get there and you make it and you become an All-American and all those kinds of things. You end up being a 38th pick in the draft, second round with the Bengals. Um, but I've always thought, and I'm not going to name any names because it doesn't do anybody any good, but there are guys that are thought of as great players in the NFL today that in my 27 years announcing quarterbacks I'm talking about, where I walk in a room in a production meeting and I walk out and they don't have it. You always had it. Um, it's easy to say Tom Brady has it. But, I mean, I can sit in a room with Russell Wilson or sit in a room with fill in the blank. And, and there's just something about him. You walk out and you're like, man, that guy's got it. Did you always have it? Yeah, I felt like I always have it because I try to explain what it is. And it is is a presence that everybody is aware that you are prepared, that you know what you're doing, and that when you get on the field that you're going to hold your teammates accountable. And then if you lose a game and you play poorly, you're going to stand up in front of the media and hold yourself accountable. And that's what it is. It's a security thing that, you know, I developed as I was younger. You know, I didn't, like I said, I didn't really have a mom in my life. So I would always been fighting for something. And it wasn't like I grew up with a silver spoon in my mouth. My, I think my dad made like $35,000 a year max. So it was always the last $5 on a Friday night so I could take my girlfriend out Sure. Uh, back in the late 70s. So that part of me, I think, is what made me the player I was and made me the guy that I am today. So it was always a drive factor for me, uh, Tom. And there's a security that I do have about the presence part of it. But what I think fueled it was the insecurity of potentially, uh, you know, being a failure and being perceived as a failure. And that's something that drove me. And, you know, when you say I was drafted in the second round, I was. But I thought I was going to be a top 10 pick. Yeah. And when I got to Cincinnati, I was so angry. And the Bengals had three first round picks that year. And initially, they had the first overall pick. And supposedly had a deal with Steve Young, who was in my draft class. But Steve went to the USFL. And when he went to the USFL, I held a press conference and said, look, I am not a fan of the Memphis Showboats. I didn't grow up rooting for the New Jersey Generals <laughs> or the Washington Federals. I want to play in the goddamn NFL. And I think the way that I said it probably turned a lot of people in the NFL off. And uh, I think that hurt my draft status 
uh, big time. And that it factor sometimes comes back to hurt you. But I also believe for whatever it is, my generation of quarterbacks, we all had like a flair and a personality about us. Yep. This generation of quarterbacks, I feel like are almost like robotic machines. I don't know if you feel that way, but oh, I also there, feel like the money, the money is so much bigger now than it's ever been that I feel like they feel they have to carry themselves a certain way. Well, I, I, I think, Boomer, that, that, that's a reflection of all of society. I mean, I have two kids in high school, and the thing that blows me away about them all the time, and, and I'm with you all the way on this hit thing, the thing that blows me away all the time is how – everybody's worried about hurting somebody's feelings. And I don't mean saying something stupid or like I said, you know, on the air, which cost me my job. I'm not talking about those kinds of things. I'm talking about, you know, just, oh, man, I don't want to ruffle any feathers. And I, I'm with you all the way. I the, the, Some of these guys that come into the league and the quarterbacks, and, and, and they just seem to be so afraid. But that's neither here nor there. But but, I, you know, a guy I want to ask you about is Sam Weish because I, I'm still convinced that when you go back through the history of the NFL, now, was he the greatest head coach in the world? No, he wasn't the greatest head coach in the world, but I thought he did, I thought he did a rock-solid job. He led a team to a Super Bowl and all that kind of thing. But he becomes your coach with the Bengals a couple of years after you take over as a starter. He trusts you to run the no-huddle offense. Now, it's inconceivable to the younger generation, especially that watch college football, that there is that there was never such a thing as the no-huddle. Everybody's running it. But you were really the first guy to run it. That was a big deal. lot of put on the quarterback. Yeah, you know, it was a big deal, and it was a chance that Sam took. And Sam had guts. I'll give him that. He was crazy, but he had guts. And he was trying to do things that nobody else would do. Now, of course, you need a guy to be able to handle everything that he's throwing at you. And this was before the quarterback-to-coach communication devices that they used in these days. And Sam would make us, all the quarterbacks, and as the starting quarterback, I would have to memorize the entire game plan. I would have to know everything. I would have to know personnel groups. I would have to know formations. I would have to know the signals from the sideline and how to, you know, quickly decipher what he's sending in and what he wants. I would have to know tendencies of defenses. I would have to know defensive fronts, defensive coverages. When I was at the line of scrimmage, you know, I would start the the, the snap count if we were getting into a longer snap count by identifying the defensive front. And there are probably like eight, nine, ten different defensive fronts that I would have to call out at the line of scrimmage via the number system. So it would either be like 25, 57, 46, 34, 43, 42, 41. Like I would have to identify all of that before we even ran a play wow. at the line of scrimmage. So, uh, so once he realized that I could absolutely handle all of that on the mental side, then he started saying, well, let's do this kind of huddle, a sugar huddle. Let's do a no huddle. Let's do a hurry up and get to the line of scrimmage and snap the ball when they have 12 men on the field kind of situation. So these are all things that were driving everybody in the NFL crazy. And remember, when we first started it, there were only 28 teams in the league. So uh, everybody's trying to figure out what we're doing. They're all complaining to the league office. I mean, it was just it was mayhem. But we were good at it. And I was good at it. And I was good at communicating with my teammates. Because not all my teammates actually knew exactly what I was saying. Sometimes I would have to turn around to one of the backs and say, hey, we're running 17 to the left. After I'm going through all of these different code words at the line of scrimmage. 
I mean, it was, it was unbelievable, but it was fun. Um, and when Sam was fired and I had to play one year with David Shula, we tried to reenact all that stuff. And for the first four weeks of that, of that season in 1992, I believe it was, I was calling all the plays, all the personnel groups, all the situational football. And I almost had a mental breakdown in the middle of the season. It was just way too much for one person to do it. I had to be directed by somebody, and that's where Sam and Bruce Coswick came in, and that's one of the reasons why I had so much success with them. You know, I remember as a, I was a very young reporter working at the NBC affiliate in Cincinnati, my first job out of college, and uh, I had just taken over as a weekend sports anchor. And it's the eve of the AFC championship game. I'll never forget this as long as I live. I'm sitting in the offices in downtown uh, Cincinnati, and I get a phone call from a guy inside the league office. And he says to me, look, Marv Levy is petitioning the league not to allow this no-huddle offense on the eve of the AFC championship game. You need to get on this story right away, he says to me. I go rushing down where all the NFL people are staying uh, at a hotel in downtown Cincinnati. You're hosting the game. And I ask two or three of them, and, and they just keep walking right by me. Do you remember that night when all that went down? 100% I do. Yeah. And I remember Sam just going crazy. And, you know, the fact that Sam went crazy, the fact that we were dealing with it, Marv Levy had achieved his goal. He wanted us to be distracted from the game itself. He wanted us to fight the league office and worry about other things other than the football game. But what Marv Levy discounted and didn't I guess take into consideration was how angry we were as a team and how we were going to come out and play that game and how motivated we were and thankfully before the game the NFL came to its senses and said no we're not asking you to change anything you could do everything that you've done during the season and it was really a a 10-hour waste of time but I think Marv Levy thought that this would be a great way to get them off their game because we had played them earlier that year and we beat them up pretty good. Yep. So I think this was a little bit of gamesmanship on his part. I probably would have done the same thing if I were in his shoes. Um, unfortunately for those guys, it didn't work. And for us, it kind of gave us an edge going into that game that I don't necessarily know that we would have had simply because we had destroyed them earlier in the season. You know, I don't think people realize outside of Cincinnati uh, because so much has evolved offensively since then. But 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 that 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 offense was a juggernaut. I mean, in the pass game, uh, the wide receivers, you had quarterback, the run game, you're three deep there. James Brooks was an incredible player. Icky Wood, Stanley Wilson, and, and that brings to the next question. Uh, I was down in Miami um, for that Super Bowl. And, you know, um, Stanley Wilson has a drug relapse, suspended from a team. Um, I, I remember that, that, that Sam had called me on the phone and said, hey, look, uh, did you guys get any video of, gosh, who's the guy that ran the kickoff back? I'm, I'm drawing a total blank now. Stanford so, Jennings. Right, Stanford Jennings. His wife had had a baby the night before. Happy, yep. The, the, the team needs some kind of a, you know, a pick-me-up or something. I want to show it to the team. Can you guys get video? Blah, 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 blah. But Stanley Wilson in that game, did, did you miss him? Did it, did, it, did it in any way affect the outcome of that game? 
It really did. Uh, Stanley was our short yardage back. And I, I want to say that we had, uh, I don't know if it was a half a dozen, but at least four or five third down and like short where, you know, you'd hand the ball to Stanley and he would make it. You know, it's interesting how all of this went down because if you remember, we were staying at the Omni Hotel in Miami and right across the street uh, in, a, in a, this part of the city called Overtown where um, Eddie Brown grew up, there were protests going on and there were fires. And it was like you could look out your hotel room and you could see this part of the city just basically on lockdown with the police surrounding it. And it was just, it was ugly. It was really ugly. And this was when they would take the teams and they would move us to a clandestine hotel the night before the yeah. Super Bowl. Right. And Stanley Wilson was sitting next to me on on the bus going to that clandestine hotel and everything was fine he was doing great and we had an eight o'clock meeting or we had a seven o'clock meeting and we showed up to the meeting and sam said guys go back and watch john madden's road to the super bowl they're playing it from like seven to eight o'clock and you guys obviously are featured and go back and enjoy it and then we'll have our meeting after that and that decision right there is where stanley wilson fell off the boat if you will um, that's when the situation with him and his cocaine battle all came to a head in his hotel room while we, while we were all sent back uh, to go watch this road to the Super Bowl by John Madden. So then when we reconvened for our meeting about an hour later, Sam Weiss was standing up in front of us. Now, Sam was a little bit of a prankster, as you know, and he always tried to lighten the mood by doing a magic trick or coming up with a joke or just doing something so ridiculous that you had a laugh at it and you couldn't believe that you were in pro football. That was the beauty of Sam, the unpredictable nature of him. Well, he's standing up in front of us and he's got tears in his eyes and we're all thinking that he's joking around with us. We're all thinking that there's something going on here and he's just trying to cut the, the tension and all that other stuff. And he mentioned to us that uh, Stanley Wilson is, no, is not going to be able to play in tomorrow's game. So that's when we knew he was serious because he invoked Stanley Wilson's name. I guess he found Stanley or Jim Anderson, our running back coach, found Stanley because he was not at the meeting. He was late to the meeting, and they went to his room, and they found him. And he wasn't in great shape, I guess. Never really got the, the true lowdown on all of that. But then it was really up to Sam. You know, Sam was the one that decided that Stanley was not going to play in the Super Bowl. I'm telling you, there are hundreds of other coaches that would have been in that situation that would have said, get the guy some coffee, get him a good night's sleep. We're not playing until six o'clock tomorrow night. He's going to play in the game and we'll deal with this afterwards. But Sam, you know, to his credit, held to his moral high ground, if you will. And he decided that Stanley was not going to be allowed to play. And I don't know if he was using that as a motivational tool for us or, but I, it had to kill him. It just had to absolutely kill him to make that decision. And, uh, you know, just imagine the night before the Super Bowl, one of your most important players is going to be suspended by the head coach and not be allowed to play. So that was a, a huge blow at the moment. You go to the Jets for two years, Arizona for a year. In October of 95, you take a vicious hit from future Hall of Famer Bruce Smith. You suffer a concussion. Um, you're believed to be, to this day, the first player to enter a concussion study during the course of a season. Now, when that happens, 
you know, look, you, you had been hit 10,000 times or more at that point in time between high school, college, and the NFL. I mean, you're 10, 11 years deep into a career. Are you thinking, is this a joke, or did you think this is serious stuff? You know, it's interesting you bring this, this hit up because the other day on YouTube, I watched a five-minute clip of that play, and I had never watched the five-minute clip of the play. I've, I've seen the highlight of it. I don't remember it at all. The interesting thing about the five-minute clip is the people who are doing the game. So the play-by-play guy is Marv Albert, and the uh, the analyst is Chris Collinsworth. And wow. I'm like, and I'm listening to what they're they are saying about the play and everything else. And I'm having this out of body experience earlier this week. And I'm like, man, I can't believe that's me. I just can't believe that's me. So when they put me in the concussion protocol, I didn't I didn't know if they were doing it to keep me away from the team or they were doing it for all the right reasons. And the interesting thing, the guy who put me into the concussion protocol was the doctor for the Jets, and his name is Elliot Pellman. And if anybody has seen the movie Concussion, one of the villains in that movie in the eyes of the National Football League Players Association, the union, is Dr. Elliot Pellman. Because the NFL, in its infinite wisdom, decided to put a general practitioner as the head of the concussion study program, when in actuality it should have been a neurologist. Sure. So Elliot uh, is not depicted very nicely in this movie, but I have to say... He was the first one who put me in a concussion protocol because he was the head. He was the head medical uh, director for the, the New York Jets. So you know, it's it's a weird thing watching that movie, watching this five minute clip, and realizing that I think I was the impetus for the concussion protocol yeah, back I, in 1995. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. You know, I, I asked Troy Aikman this question, Boomer, and he was brutally honest about it. Do you ever worry about CTE? You know, I, I'm assuming that I have it. You know, I, I, I think you have to if you're a football player and you've, uh, you've been hit as many times as we have we were hit. And uh, Troy was a part of my era. You know, he was a little bit later than me, but we all played on horrendous fields. Uh, you know, not the fields of today by any stretch of the imagination. The Astrodome was awful. The bet was awful. Riverfront Stadium was terrible. Dallas Stadium was terrible. That All those old stadiums with um, the hard surface, yep. the AstroTurf, it was just terrible. And we didn't have the helmets that they're wearing today. And we took more hits at our position than they do today. So there's no question, I think, that anybody who did play is suffering from CTE. There's no question about it. We just don't know how everybody reacts to it. And at the moment, you know, I, I, I've undergone neurological tests. Uh, we all have, for at least most of us have, uh, simply to kind of a, establish a baseline as to where we are in our lives. So I'll be 60 years old this year. I feel like I'm still pretty pretty sharp cognitively. Yep. And, and to be able to speak every day on a radio, you have to be. So I feel pretty comfortable about, you know, my future, but I also worry about, you know, my family and what would happen if I wasn't here to take care of them. So, you know, I'm like everybody else, you know, you want to make sure that you take care of your responsibilities first and foremost, your health uh, is a, is a big part of that. And certainly our brain health as ex football players, like Troy said, is paramount to all of it. 
Since your retirement, you, you, you touched on this earlier and reflecting on your dad, Norman, and him instilling in, into you and your two sisters about work ethic. But, Boomer, I got, I got to be honest with you. I mean, you know, all the TV shows, uh, you were working games for a long time. You have the NFL Today on CBS. You've got this syndicated show you do. You do a local radio show in New York City. Why? I mean, what, Why what not? drives you, Boomer? <laughs> I mean, really. I mean, there are probably days you ask the same question. But, I mean, you know, a lot of guys out there, you know, they get that broadcast gig, especially at your level, and they're like, man, that's more than enough. rest of the time I can go out and do X, Y, and Z. And I mean, why? Well, you know, because I have a two-pronged situation here. I have my foundation on one side, and in order to stay relevant in that arena, I have to be able to have a platform to exploit. And I make no apologies for that. The, uh, the, the football platform initially to get the thing started back in 1993 – and now the broadcasting for over the last 22 years has kept us front and center. You know, it's, uh, you know, I'm basically representing about 30,000 cystic fibrosis patients across our country. And advocating for 30,000 people is not easy. But, you know, when you do have a platform like I do, uh, I'm able to, you know, get into some doors that, you know, can help the patients and their families. Like Gunner's going to be fine, you know, and Gunner's doing great. But there are so many kids that don't have what he has. And, you know, that's what we're fighting for. We're fighting for equal treatment. We're fighting for their abilities to grow and and to be a part of society and be not be judged by society, but be a a, a member of society in, in, in real time and in real life. And most CF patients, that's all they want. Uh, they don't want to be treated specially. They just want to be treated honestly and fairly. And, you know, being an advocate in that world for that few of people is, is not easy. So I just feel like I'm driven to keep the word out there any way I can. And broadcasting has made you know, a big impact on that. You know, um, you know, you bring up Gunner and you and Cheryl find out in 1993, he's having breathing difficulties. It ultimately leads to that cystic fibrosis diagnosis. Um, I'm sure you remember the day you got that news and sitting there in a doctor's office. And, and my guess is, and Boomer, correct me if I'm wrong here, but my guess is, like a lot of parents, when you hear something like this about your child, it is indescribable the feelings that you have. And, 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 and you know, that, that's part of the question, but also part of the question. I have to believe that moment in time is something you can use now that if you really need uh, that extra sort of kick or that extra sort of bolt or jolt or whatever word you want to use, that remembering that feeling and what it must be like for other parents keeps you going. 100%. You know, the interesting thing, Tom, is I don't know many people, they know this or not, but 1989, after I had won the MVP in the NFL, in March of 89, I was getting an award in Washington, D.C., and I didn't realize it was a fundraiser. You know, I'm a young guy. I'm not really sure what's going on. And uh, before I get my award, the feature speaker gets up there and he starts talking about a disease by the name of cystic fibrosis, which I had never heard of. And uh, this guy so eloquently put it into perspective because he lost his daughter, Alex, at the age of six mm. to cystic fibrosis. There wasn't a dry eye in the house. And after I had received my award, I went up to him and I said, you know, how can I help you? So his name was Frank DeFord. 
And oh, Frank DeFord, uh, as you know, is a, 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 unfortunately he's passed, but a well-renowned sports writer and journalist and just somebody with impeccable credentials and so much smarter than I ever could be. So listening to him that night in 89 got me involved in CF fundraising in Cincinnati. Golf tournaments, um, hitters luncheons at the waterfront, uh, you name it, I was trying to do it and trying to be the face of the disease. Now, I didn't have any kids at that time. And, uh, of course, Gunnar was born in 91. He showed signs of CF, but he tested negative because the test was screwed up. And then it wasn't until two years later, 93, and I was getting ready to step on the field at Hofstra University for my first practice as the New York Jets head uh, quarterback because I had just gotten traded to the Jets, and it was minicamp practice in May. When a secretary came running out and said, Boomer, your wife's on the phone, you have to take the phone call. So before I could even take a snap, I go running back in. I talk to Cheryl. She says, Gunner's in Cincinnati Children's Hospital. He can't breathe. They got oxygen. They're, they're treating him. I, we're not really sure what's wrong with him, but it's really bad. It's the worst it's been over the last two years. I said, okay, I'm coming home. So I flew home back to Cincinnati that day, and that's when uh, Dr. Wilmot came walking in and, and, and basically said to us that Gunnar has cystic fibrosis. You can imagine how I felt. Uh, after no, knowing I, I, everything. I can't, I can't, I can't imagine how you felt. I, I don't think any parent out there can imagine how you feel until you go through something like this. Yeah. I, but for me, like I, I've been around sick kids with cystic fibrosis and watched kids at the age of 10 die at Cincinnati children's hospital because of their lung infection. Right. And now all of a sudden I'm thrust right into the middle of this. So my first phone call is to my dad back in New York. And my second phone call is to Frank DeFord. And I said, Frank, you're not going to believe this. My son Gunnar was just diagnosed with cystic fibrosis. What do I do? And there was like a really awkward pregnant pause. And Frank and I have discussed this on that HBO show uh, that he was a part of. And um, and I, I just, I got to tell you, we cried. And he told me, he goes, Boomer, it's a sign. It's destiny. Yep. It's, I don't know how else to, I don't know how else to say it. We don't have anybody that has the platform that you're going to have, especially in New York. And so I said, okay, it's a burden, of course. And uh, Gunnar and I, I were featured on the cover of Sports Illustrated that October, about five months later, going into the 93 season. And uh, it was titled The Quarterback's Crusade, and here I am 27 years later doing the same thing. That's why I work so much. <laughs> well, uh, you know, it's incredible. The, 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 I don't know if there's anything else that, that, that at the end of the day when you put your head on the pillow and you're saying your prayers or you're thanking, you know, whoever it is, whatever faith you have or don't have it, but you're just saying, you know, it was meant to be. I don't think there's any doubt about that, and I think Frank was spot on about that, and, and it's incredible the difference that you have made not only for kids uh, but for their parents um, and and all the work that's been done with CF. Boomer, I could talk to you for hours, but um, this, has been an, this has been so enjoyable. I mean, I remember watching you as a, as a kid, and, and I'm not going to say as a kid because I'm only three years younger than you are, two years <laughs> younger, but I mean, I felt like I, we were all kids together back in those days, and, and uh, boy, the, the excitement you brought and the joy you brought um, off the field and on the field to so many in uh, Cincinnati, which I know is a special place for you, and it, it's my hometown, and still live here now, and and um, 
It's not been the same here uh, since you left uh, as far as the Bengals and a quarterback and all those kinds of things. But thank you for your time. Keep up all the great work. And uh, tell Cheryl and the kids hello. And, and, and thank you for your time. I really appreciate uh, it. My, my pleasure, Tom. Thanks for reaching out for me. And good luck to you the rest of the way. And uh, I appreciate all that you're trying to do to get back on the air. You deserve it. Well, I really appreciate that. It means a great deal. Boomer, be well. Take care, Tom. Boomer Esiason, kind enough to join us on this week's edition of Dialed In with Tom Brenneman. We've got some really interesting guests coming up in the next couple of weeks. Um, Some you've heard of, some you have not heard of. We have Joe Buck lined up. He'll be joining us. We have Tim McCarver. Boy, you talk about a guy that's been around the block a time or two. And we have one of the guests I'm most looking forward to, and if you get a free minute, Just Google the name Mike Reed, R-E-I-D. I think he is one of the most fascinating people that is walking this planet today. He was the seventh pick in the NFL draft. He's a pro bowler his first three years in the NFL and all of a sudden decides to quit to embark on a musical career. So we've got a lot of great guests coming up. We thank you. We thank Dave Armbruster, our producer-engineer. I'm Tom Brenneman. We'll catch you next week. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.